Hello and welcome to the Football Collective Podcast, a football research podcast for debate, discussion, highlighting members of the collective, their research and all things football within the world of academia. So I'm joined on this episode of the Football Collective Podcast for the first time in person with somebody. With the background of a wet, dreary Manchester in the uh, here at the Manchester Metropolitan University, with uh, Paul Brannigan. How are you? Very good, thanks, Josh. Yourself? It's, it's good. Yeah, it's very good to see you. Apart from the rain this morning. Yes, uh, as always, uh, typical Manchester. Yeah. Unfortunately. So, just the first question, um, as I always do with all the guests on this, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into academia initially? Yeah, sure. So my academic journey, I guess, started uh, would have been, I think, around about two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Um, so I applied for the BA in football studies down at Southampton Solent University. Um, I think I must have applied for it, uh, probably about six months before I got accepted, forgot all about it. And then randomly one day woke up and had this letter, uh, through my door. Um, and you know, I was over the moon, you know, going to university and all that. Um, so at the time I wanted to go to university really to be a football coach and between my second and third year, at Solon, um, I did like this Camp America Challenge of Sports thing. Yeah. Um, went to America, coached football, even though soccer as it is. Loved it, um, but probably didn't enjoy it enough to want it to be a career sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and at the time, uh, one of my uh, lecturers, actually head of the football studies course, Dr. Richard Elliott, um, he uh, went to Loughborough. Um, he obviously went down the academic route. And I was probably quite influenced, I think, by him uh, and everything else and, you know, suddenly warmed up to the idea um, of wanting to be an academic um, and, you know, I guess, you know, beautiful job getting paid to, to read and write and talk about football and sport all day isn't, isn't too bad. So that, I think that appealed to me quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so on his advice, I signed up for the MSc in Sociology of Sport at Loughborough. Uh, took a year out, so I uh, turned up at Loughborough at 2012 um, and halfway through Loughborough, um, a gentleman named Professor Richard Giannotti joined. Uh, he just literally started the university. Um, obviously, I'd read quite a few of his books, so I approached him and said, you know, hey, I've got my dissertation for the master's coming up. Would you be interested in supervising? And luckily, he said yes. Um, and it's just one of those things, I think, that then, you know, finished the master's and was asked to sort of stay on at Loughborough and entertain the idea of turning... Uh, my master's, which was also on, uh, which we'll talk about uh, in a minute, on Qatar and the 2022 World Cup. And, you know, I was really asked, do I want to turn that uh, into a PhD? And uh, I said, yes, I guess. Um, so, and then halfway through my PhD, I got offered a job at University of Birmingham with Jonathan Gricks. Uh, initially, as a teaching assistant, so it was like a 0.5. Uh, the year after, uh, it was a teaching fellow, which is like a full-time job, I guess. Um, and then in 2017, uh, moved to Manchester Metropolitan University to take up my current role. That's, I guess, my, my life story in a, <laughs> in a nutshell. So um, can, you, can you tell us a bit more about your PhD, a bit more about how you, you end up coming to the idea of, of speaking about Qatar and studying Qatar in such depth? Yeah, sure. So I guess it was really a conversation I had with Rich Giulianotti at the time. Um, and I think, you know, looking back, it was a great thing. He, he really sort of sat me down and said what sort of sport do you like? And it was always going to be football. And he said, okay, you know, then academically, what kind of conceptual, theoretical things do you like? And, uh, you know, at Loughborough and also at at Southampton, you get taught a lot of different sort of sociological areas, whether that be theory, whether it be, you know, sport on the body, for example. But the one that really always stuck with me was this idea of globalisation. And I think I always sort of swung more towards wanting to understand more how states conduct business through sport. 
so that really sort of took me more towards sort of political sociology lens, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a chat about a few things, and you know, one of the things we we, we both sort of liked the idea of studying and, and looking at further was the idea of Qatar. Um, simply because I mean, this was before a lot of the sort of hype and, and a lot of criticism came out about Qatar, but it was a very interesting case study, first ever Middle Eastern uh, country to host a World Cup. You know, from a sociological perspective, that's really really interesting, um, but also. You know, the smallest state ever to host what we, what we might call a first order mega event like a World Cup or Olympics. So. How, how small is it in terms of, um, if you put it to scale, an area of England? Is it, like, say, as big as Yorkshire or as big as uh, um, London? Or that's a good. That's a good question. I can't remember exactly. I did have the exact figure on my PhD. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's probably equivalent. I think of the, it's smaller than London. Put it that way, as a country, really, uh, in terms of geography. Um, and land mass, whatever yeah. it may be. Um, so, you know, I think this is a huge challenge for Qatar. But again, that, that made it a really interesting case study um, to look at. So I think that's what, you know, certainly kept me at Loughborough, but also yeah. made me want to sort of focus the next couple of years on, on Qatar. So that's, that's fascinating that somewhere so small mm. um, wants that event. So what is it about Qatar that has made it want to push on to get this World Cup? Um, what, what are the main reasons behind that? Yeah, and I think that to be honest, this really sort of hits the nail on the head, as it were, in terms of what my PhD focused on. You'll know yourself. Yeah. I go on about Qatar and this idea of soft power. Probably, I've never heard you mention it to be honest. <laughs> probably far too much in lectures, uh, my poor, poor students. So, um, yeah, I mean, what I've argued, I guess, in the PhD and in, in, in publications is that the World Cup for Qatar uh, and for small states in particular does really two things. First of all, it helps them overcome their greatest hurdle, which is usually things like invisibility. Um, you know, so Qatar, you know, obviously its, it's independence was gained in 1971. It's a fairly new state. Being, being honest, I'd never heard of Qatar before before it became into the uh, popular culture of, of football. So Yeah, and I think to be honest, a lot of people probably hadn't. Yeah. I think unless you were a Middle Eastern expert or from the region, a lot of people hadn't. You know, Qatar wasn't like one of those countries. Yeah. Like like you see now, like Dubai, Abu Dhabi and Qatar, everyone knows who they are uh, sort of thing. And yeah. I think Dubai certainly did it through tourism. And we look at now Abu Dhabi you know, through things like Manchester City, for example, down the road, you know. Um, So Qatar, I think, really looked for something to really, you know, promote its existence on the world stage. And that's the sort of first thing. I think the second thing is Qatar is quite limited in what we call in terms of hard power. Um, It has no organic military whatsoever, outsources to the U.S., but one thing it has got in hard terms is a lot of financial capital, you know, largest GDP per capita in the world. So I think it's looked at something... Uh, looking, it's looking for a vehicle, really, to showcase its attraction to international audiences. And, you know, as we've talked about in sort of, you know, many, many a class, you know, what, what's better than a World Cup or Olympic Games in terms of catching uh, international audiences? So just, just to quote yourself here about soft disempowerment, mm. um, that all sounds really, really uh, fine and well that you're going to get the World Cup and you're going to get all this media attention, but... Um, as your study suggests, that, that can backfire. Can you tell us a bit about um, your, your research on that as well? Yeah, sure. And I think this is... Uh, we just recently had a paper uh, published last year in, in International Affairs, myself and Richard. And I think really what we've looked at here is if you look at a major event like a World Cup or Olympics as a stage, that's really what they are. They're what I would call forms of strategic communication. So we live in a society now where we have Twitter and we have Facebook and we have Instagram and a whole load of other things I don't understand. (laughs) But we live in a world of just ridiculous, intense information. It's an information society. 
Now, in terms of accessing information, it actually makes things very, very difficult because you have a white noise of information. It's very difficult to know who to believe and who to trust and, and so on. So if you're trying to get your voice or your opinion or your message across, it's a bit like trying to shout in a room full of people who are also shouting. So what a mega event is, as a sort of strategic communication, is almost like if I handed you a megaphone. All, all of a sudden, you have an advantage over everyone else because you have a stage in which you're going to be heard. However... The problem you have with this, this on the one hand, uh, which can benefit states, this gives them an opportunity to get across their cultural attractiveness um, and also demonstrate their accomplishments, whatever else it may be. But what it also encourages is others to critically evaluate these states who actually get these events. And of course, this is where soft disempowerment really comes in. So it's the idea that in trying to promote themselves on the international stage, what states also do is promote... Sort of you know, uh, I guess indirectly, promote their negative aspects as well. They're basically opening themselves up to scrutiny, I guess. Um, and this is really where I think we, we look at softest power. You look at uh, Brazil and the riots, you know, we look at Russia before the, the World Cup started. We had, you know, questions around uh, issues of homophobia uh, and some of the national laws there. And obviously Qatar, we look at, you know, human rights records, accusations of bribery, um, you know, the idea it's going to be too hot, it's an unsafe place for fans. These are some of the things that we see regularly when states host major events, there's always this sort of soft disempowerment that goes on at some point in the background. And this is where I think it's quite interesting with the, the regional politics, because at the moment FIFA are arguing that Qatar should share the World Cup with neighbours like Bahrain and Abu Dhabi, etc., etc. And I think a lot of that around at the moment is fears around trying to, or well, I guess fears that Qatar is such a small country. So go back to what we're talking about being you know, a tiny, tiny country. There's going to be a number of security issues there. I think, particularly from FIFA's perspective. But it's also with regard to the regional politics. Um, but look, I mean, we've had this. I mean, I remember England a couple of years ago was saying they would throw their hat in the ring if, if Qatar's World Cup was sort of taken away, they, as it were. They did in the same bit. I remember that. Maybe. Yeah. Well, this is obviously because, I mean, I, I, I spoke to a lot of Qataris during my PhD, and I think the one thing that they, they talk about, if you ask them and you say, you know, why are you getting all this negative press? Well, were you surprised by it? first of all, and they, you speak to any Qataris, they are shocked by it. I was with Hassan Al-Thawadi, who's in charge of these, the uh, Secretary General uh, in Oxford last year, and he was just saying they were utterly surprised by the amount of criticism. Is that because of the, the size of the state and because it, they've probably never had this media, sort of media attention before? I think it is, yeah, and I think this is where, again, we've argued with soft disempowerment, it can affect smaller countries a lot more, maybe not smaller necessarily, I think probably less developed countries. So you look at America, for example, if you criticise America, America's got a great arsenal um, of communication. It's got CNN, it's got all these major sort of, you know, corporations. It can quite easily fight back because it has, you know, quite a bit of power, if you like, in the network society. It owns quite a bit yeah. of it. And I think with Qatar and some other countries, when they develop too quickly, sometimes their public relations machinery takes a little bit longer to catch up. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like I say, speak to Qataris, they see this as very much sour grapes, the fact that a lot of the criticisms coming from America and coming from the UK the two states that lost out in that round of FIFA's bidding. Um, but certainly Qatar you know, should be doing a lot more and could do a lot more um, you know, in terms of trying to overcome this scrutiny uh, in a meaningful and sustainable way. So if we talk about stuff on the pitch rather than off the pitch, Qatar did really well at the Asia Cup. I think they only conceded one goal or something mm -hmm. crazy like that. What would a good World Cup on the field mean for Qatar in, rather than off the field? Yeah, and I think this, this is something that Qatar are very, very aware about. Is I think, the, I think what initially what the last thing the Qataris want is to be humiliated. Um, 
you know, I was speaking to, uh, I did my PhD, the head of an uh, organisation called Aspire, and that's basically the state's national training centre. But The Aspire Academy. That's yeah, it, yeah. yeah. I mean, to be honest, it's, facility-wise, it's probably one of the leading sports facilities in the world. You know, you have football players, tennis players from around the world. You know, big names go there for rehabilitation. It's the only FIFA medical centre in the Middle East, so it's a huge establishment. But he was in charge of that, and his, the, the, the sort of domestic role, if you like, of Aspire is converting Qataris or Qataris who show a little bit of talent into professional players. Yeah. That's really difficult. You look at China, you look at the US, they have a much larger pool of talent. You know, Qatar has a population of 3 million, but only 10% of the, that 3 million, 300,000, are actually Qataris. So the pool is tiny. So it's a real, real task there. Um, but certainly they've put a lot, a lot of money and investment into making sure that come 2022... They have a team that isn't going to be humiliated. Well, the the star player, the striker, I think, was uh, Sudanese, the top scorer in the, in the uh, tournament. Well, this is the other criticism, yeah. of course. I mean, Qatar uh, won the final of the handball championships. Uh, Twenty fifteen. Didn't know that either. Yeah, they hosted it as well. Um, <laughs> and uh, handball's not one of the sports I'm too uh, involved in, but that's that's um, like quite a traditionally European sport. A bit like a bit like footballers as well. Yeah, but I mean, you know, if if you want to encourage audience attention, I think that's one of the ways is, is to do it. It's, yeah. You know, you want to go for you know, no disrespect to Qataris, and of course it's all relative soft power. But if you really want, you know, you wouldn't look just to host, for example, falconing or horse racing per se. You're going to want to host these big mega events yeah. which attract different audiences from around the world. But just to go back to that 2015 uh, Hamble team, uh, I don't think it was one Qatari in that team, and this is another area where Qatar has really come under scrutiny, this idea of naturalisation, that, you know, it's, it's almost sort of like the season's of the Brazilian C team, yeah. um, which is an issue, but they are developing local Qataris at Aspire, certainly. Um, so I think in answer to the original question, I think they, they don't want to be humiliated. I don't think it's necessarily they, they, they really want to get out of the group stage, but like I said, they want to show that they can, they can handle themselves at major competitions like this. I think they, they demonstrated that at the Asia Cup. They did yeah. very well. Um, so just my final question for you. Um, after this World Cup, post twenty twenty two, three years time, which is quite scary, it's coming on quite fast. Yeah. Um, what is the future of Qatar? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think a lot of it will hinge on how well they host. First of all, how well they host the World Cup. I think if we look at Russia, there was a lot of criticism uh, concerning Russia before the tournament. They host a really, really good tournament, and some of that critique beforehand is now forgotten we look back and think great tournament that absolutely brilliant um so i think some of it will come down to how well qatar organizes the world cup and i think it's different for qatar i don't think the media are going to let up and they've got too much of a vested interest they've attacked qatar too much to suddenly just forget everything post event but dare i say it qatar hasn't got a great history of hosting mega events they, they're, they're not brilliant at hosting these events. A lot of times they've had issues before where they'll close, you know, the Emir turns up for the Emir Cup, uh, I forget this is a couple of years ago, and they shut all the doors. And then you have, you know, 30,000 fans outside stadium who can't get in there, they're not allowed in. So you have an empty stadium. It's little things like this. That why, why is that, is it? Because the Emir was there, security reasons, they weren't willing to let anyone right, else okay. in. 
But it's a case of, you know, the Emir turns up 10 minutes early, all of a sudden the doors are shut and you can't get in, you've got a ticket and you've I got imagine, kids. I imagine Infantino will be uh, wrapped around him. Absolutely, yeah, of course. Yeah. I think, I, you know, I'm not, obviously I think the World Cup will be slightly different, but it's things like I wrote a paper with uh, Joel Rookwood, um, who obviously has been part of this podcast too. And, you know, one of the things we look at here was fans critique um, of the way Qataris will sell tickets, you know. So I, I do think it's, you know, it'll be different for the World Cup, but the Qataris do have a history of... Not host, not being excellent hosts, but hopefully they've learned from those mistakes. But I think my point was, this World Cup cannot afford any glitches whatsoever. It has to go up, you know, it has to go off really, really well. Um, I think that's the first thing. Second thing is that I think Qatar are going to have to address a lot of the social, broader social political issues they've been criticised for. Um, and without going into a long story, I, I, I think they probably will, but it might be too late. There's too much money to be made yeah. in Qatar for anything significant and substantial to change right now leading up to the World Cup. Once the construction's on the money's made, it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, I'm not saying they, they completely get rid of Kafala, but something significant happens which does overhaul the system somewhat. Yeah. Um, so post-2022, I guess, in, aren't, <laughs> in short, I don't know. Um, it would be very, very interesting. Um, but I think the, the crucial stage between now and 2022, certainly. So thank you very much for your time today, Paul. Pleasure. Great to sit down.